0: Um, Let's pray to start because I'm not ready to preach this sermon. And by that, I don't mean I didn't work hard this week. But that this issue and topic is probably the most complex one I know about. It's incredibly difficult to talk publicly about. I've been studying about it for years um, and i just don 't think i 'm ready but i 'm going to talk about it because we can 't wait until i 'm ready to talk about it at all and um, And the other thing you need to know is I made a commitment some years ago um, not to dance around touchy issues okay so um, I'm not going to dance around any touchy issues. And so this is going to be an opportunity where everybody gets to get mad, probably. And I'm—and this is probably going to be the worst sermon I've preached at High Point yet. So if you're new, please don't decide whether or not God can touch you here um, or at all on the basis of the next number of minutes. So I say it sincerely. So let's actually pray right now. Really, no kidding, ask God to make this better than it's going to be otherwise, okay? Let's right now. Okay. Father— Please help me to preach about this well and honestly and humbly um, and helpfully and encouragingly and truthfully. And please limit my error as much as possible. Maximize my ability to say what you would say as much as possible and help us to um, take from this what you would want us to. And to recognize that on issues, especially issues this complex, coming out of minds as limited as any individual mind, much less my own, that we need to have some grace, um, but yet not be any less serious about the issue because of it. So help us in these next minutes in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to need some water here. So if somebody could help me with that, that'd be awesome. The topic of justice in relationship to the gospel. Um, well, let me just say it this way. The topic of justice in general is a really, really hot topic right now, isn't it? Um, there's protests going on all over the, all over the country right now. Um, the Occupy Wall Street thing and all that stuff. All over the country, there's pro- we had protests down here, not as big as the last ones, um, but uh, that, that's been a big thing. Uh, this last week or the week before, um, the Congressional Budget Office came out with a report on income distributions in America, which start, sparked this whole debate about income distribution and justice and equality and all that kind of thing. And are these people killing, hurting these people? And are these people getting too rich? And is that fair? And is that right? Which led to a whole lot of um, response by people interested in things like free markets. Um, And everybody was really—there was a lot of ink spilled and keys typed in the last couple of weeks on this. And this is all just the latest spillover, right? And a lot of stuff that's been happening over the last couple of years, both nationally and locally. Not just statewide, but for us in Madison, locally. And tempers are— High and um, the people want justice, and we're not exactly sure what that is. <laughs> the frustrating thing about justice is that um, we use the word constantly, and we're not really exactly sure exactly what it means. In fact, a lot of times people say they're not even sure what they mean by it. They just mean that you you are morally it's morally imperative that you do what I'm telling you to do right now because it's justice, even though um, your your logic may be just as valid as mine. The problem with justice is there are many valid logics for justice, aren't there? That's the the trouble with it. And so one person can say, well, justice would be fairness. Now, is that—that's perfectly valid logic. You could argue that that's true, but somebody else could—thank you, Christine. Somebody else could say, well, no— That's not It's kind of like saying Anyway, without getting But hopefully Without I don't want to offend you yet Because I got more Um, But This whole idea that um, Oh, well, my logic For why this particular policy is just Is logically valid Therefore true No, no, no We take a class in philosophy Just because your logic is valid Doesn't make it true Doesn't make it true And the whole problem With most of our arguments is we don't even discuss our premises <laughs> and what, the data we think is a fact and all this sort of thing. And so you get these really heated discussions. Nobody knows what they're talking about. They just assume because their logic is valid. They must be right. And so what ends up happening is an enormous amount of injustice that people don't even notice is happening because they're focused on a particular kind of injustice they believe exists on one side or the other political spectrum. And they focus on that And they allow other kinds of injustice to grow dramatically on the back of an argument about a particular kind of justice because they have—we have lost sight of what the Bible teaches about justice, compassion, mercy, and all these things. So, um, I'm going to foray into this a little bit, and and here's why I think it's really important. because, Because it's a hot topic in the culture, it's a hot topic in the church. Um, it, is, it is affecting the way the generations are relating to each other Because there's been a fairly strong shift Particularly in 20-something and 30-somethings Towards more liberal political persuasions um, And a lot of older evangelicals 30s and, over, and, and older than that Are very strongly conservative in their understandings Of how Christians should be political And it's creating this divide And because of that Um and, and, and it's it's true on both sides. That if you want to if you want to publish a Christian book right now and make some money, publish a book on politics, even if it's terrible, <laughs> and you don't know anything about politics. Um, one of my professors recently, and I actually think it's a probably a really good book, published a book called um, I forget what it's called. I think it's Biblical Guide to. Political—whatever, I forget. It's, his name's Wayne Girdleman. It's a book on politics. Five, th- they, they published it first week, 5,000 copies, gone. His systematic theology, which is the most distributed systematic theology in America, didn't do that for, like, he didn't sell 5,000 copies for almost a year. One week, 5,000 copies, and the book is 624 pages long. And he is not an interesting writer. <laughs> Sorry, right. Yeah. Somebody's read, read that, yeah. And here's—the reason this is such a problem is because these views about justice, which mostly are terribly half-baked, are becoming the new fountainhead in the church for self-righteousness, division, and incivility. And it allows one side to say, I'm promoting social justice, and um, you can feel like you're the only ones who really understand Christ's mission in the world to reweave shalom and all that. And the other generation um, can reject all that crappy social justice talk that has really just warmed over or turned the century progressivism, and, I'm the only, and you can be the only ones who aren't soft-headed, um, you know— co-opted idiots of the far left or whatever. You know, I mean, like, we, it's, it's not like we're warm towards the other side very well, and it, it, the pull is strong, and it's ugly. And it is—we do—listen, the, the church, listen, we do not need a new fountainhead of self-righteousness, okay? we got plenty of them. We've got an English garden of fountains of self-righteousness, okay? We don't need a bigger one. And so, um, I, I want to say a little bit about the biblical doctrine of justice, so far as I can tell, I want to say that it is not a mushy concept in the Bible. The concept of justice in the Bible is particu- is fairly limited and fairly clear. Um, I want to say that for those people who are on, who think a little bit more communitarily about this, tend to be a little bit more politically to the left and so on, That that doesn't need to terrify you because— The next point I want to make after that Is that in the Bible Compassion and mercy are equally mandatory As justice So a particular issue Might not in the Bible be justice But it might be just as mandatory As justice Mercy is commanded in the Bible It's not suggested And God threatens hell With a lack In Situations where he judges people's faith on the basis of whether or not they extended mercy to others. And so the fact that justice may be a fairly narrow concept, which I'll get to, and mercy is different than justice, it's just as mandatory. And so it shouldn't terrify you to say, oh no, Nick's pulling these good deeds out of justice. Now the moral imperative isn't going to be there anymore. Well, it may not be there politically, but it will be there Christianly for us It's just as mandatory, and the gospel is binding on those who don't believe it. We're not going to politically enforce it on those who don't believe it, but ultimately, God is king. And then lastly, I want to argue that both justice and compassion are best fueled— by really believing the gospel, and they will fuel it in a way where we can actually talk about it and actually do it and actually be an example of, ha- of, of interacting both publicly and privately on it in a way that we are becoming, as a culture, much less able to do so, which is an enormous opportunity for us. Are you with me? Can you hang in for a little bit of that? Okay. Anybody mad yet? Okay. You are? Okay. Just one. All right, so listen, the gospel message isn't earthly justice and mercy. It isn't mercy. That's not the message. The gospel message isn't earthly justice and mercy, but the gospel message is the strongest support and promoter of earthly justice and ministry there could ever be. And that should bring joy to the hearts of the people who care about evangelism and believing that the most just and merciful thing we can do is to tell people about Jesus and how Jesus sets people free and makes them brave and makes them strong and binds them together in communities that can accomplish something. That the most merciful thing we can do is give people the gospel. And it should also bring joy to the hearts of people who say, what good are we going to do? What good are we going to be? Are we going to help anybody? Or are we just going to sit around and be pious? Listen, we've done a lot of pious talking. Even the churches—I I there was this hilarious quote. I was reading a blog on this where somebody's attacking— Anyway, I don't want to tell you the context, but there was this guy who wrote it and he said, Listen, I go to a church where we talk all about social justice and how we're going to help people and how we're going to transform the culture, and we can't get enough volunteers for the nursery. Bottom line. We talk we're going to—we're going to—we're going to transform our—our— our, our whole city, we can't get five people to watch eight-month-olds. That's it, right? It's just a bunch of, it's just a bunch of pious humbug for most of us. And so— it should, be, it should fill us with joy those of us who want to do some good in the world that the gospel has the ability to destroy our idolatry and turn us with compassion to others like Jesus turned to us with compassion and actually care about people who aren't us and can't give us anything and pour out our resources and our life and our love and our family and our privacy for their good. The gospel does that. It makes people like that. And so, I think if we get this straight, we could be a people who could do a whole lot of good and not be, and not confuse the gospel with the effects of the gospel for the earthly good of people who need it because God's compassion in us is pouring out on others. Does that make sense? Okay, so first, justice is solid in the Bible. It is not a mushy concept. You go out there, you have a conversation about justice. You have no idea—you have to—you you should spend—any conversation you have, you should spend t- the first 50 minutes defining your terms. What do you mean by that? You should—whenever you have a political conversation with somebody, be nice. And the first 50 things you should say in that conversation is, what do you mean by something that they just said? first so you don't understand them so you listen to them so you're being civil and loving and trying to figure out what they're talking about and also because they probably don't have any clue what they're talking about and they will refute themselves and you don't have to be mean okay it's just in the Bible justice is focused on the idea of giving people their full rights under law that's the main focus in the Bible Okay. And the New International Version, um, the, there's, the, the word justice is translated 128 times. Now, the, the word mishpat, which is sort of the catch-all category for justice in the Old Testament, is used 400 times. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, you know, the Hebrew word mishpat, oh, it's so rich and full. And in some ways it is. They'll say, you know, it's this, it's this full justice. It's, this, it's equality. It's justice. Well, you know, sort of. But it's, it's the thing about that word is it's used in lots of different ways. Sometimes it just means a rule. That's all it means. It means the rules. Other times it means giving people their due. Other times it means different things in different places. And so it's really hard to go, oh, well, there's this Hebrew word that means blah, 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 blah. Always distrust arguments like that, by the way. If somebody says, yeah, the English word sounds like this, but, you know, if you knew the Hebrew or the Greek, it would sound like blah, blah, blah. D- distrust those people, okay? Usually. Unless they're me. Um, so— <laughs> Psalm 72, 1 and 2 is a good example of the pairing of this word, the mishpat, which is often used here with justice. With, with it's no, The normal word it's paired with is, is not mercy, and it's not compassion, and it's not love, and it's not help. The word it's almost always paired with is righteousness. And so 72, 1 and 2 is endow the king... With your justice, okay. This is a psalm. It's a song of worship, prayer. We could say this. We could say we could sing. Lord, please endow our president and Congress and justices with your justice, O God, and the royal sons with your righteousness, because they are going to judge us in because. We want them to judge us in righteousness and with justice, right? The verse says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice, right? There's this link between the two because justice is a fairly hard category for there are laws. Everybody knows them. Now, do we have the will to apply them fairly to everybody without partiality? Or don't we? Or are they just something we pragmatically use within our power structures to get our way? You see, lots of countries in the world have laws on the books. When I, when I go, when I go to this, to Southeast Asia, they, they have more laws than we do. They have more laws than we do. But they have less justice in the sense because people can't ever count on whether or not they're going to get what the law says for themselves. They might have some, some gang leader use the law against them, but they could never, never expect if they went in to get a hearing that that law would be applied to them regardless of the fact that they were poor or unprotected or from the wrong group or whatever, that they would be treated Fairly under law. That's what the word justice means, and it's paired with righteousness because righteousness is the more particular and personal execution of that. We live out the law personally, and so the idea is, oh God, would we have a, could we have a king who was himself righteous and believed in your truth and believed in your—and who administered justice fairly to everybody— So it is a—particularly in the Old Testament—and the word justice is not translated very many times in the New Testament. You need to know that. And most of the time, it's in reference to the justice of God, not to any kind of social thing. Even in Luke's gospel, which is supposed to be the social gospel gospel, the word justice is not the word used. The reason we want to use the word justice instead of mercy or care or compassion is because mercy doesn't carry with it the bullying, emotional, social—moral imperative. If I tell you, hey, let's do this because it's merciful, I'm asking you to voluntarily go with me out of an inner motivation of mercy to, to accomplish something together. If I say, look, it's justice, right? I'm saying, you have to do it, or you're a bad person. Therefore, it's tempting to want to use the category of justice even when it doesn't apply. And it's also tempting to use the category of justice against the category of justice illegitimately because we want to accomplish social ends that we know are good ends and we want to bring about and we don't know how to bring them about. We just know they should be brought about. And so we use moral language to try to make people do it when we have no idea how to do it, how it would actually work, or what the policy would even look like. But in the scriptures, it focuses on giving people their full rights under law. Most of the time, it is in reference to giving people with less power their full rights under law. And that category is usually for people who are poor or who don't have men to advocate for them the fatherless and the widow. So, people who are not good at working the system, who are not well connected, people who um, could not, on the basis of their positioning in the community, expect to get justice on the basis of people doing things for them. In Southern terms, not a good old boy. Justice is when people who aren't those people get the exact same treatment as the people who are connected. That's justice. And listen, friends, don't underestimate the importance of that category. Don't, don't believe, oh, well, we have that here in the United States. So, you know, let's move on to a deeper sense of justice. Well, the problem is, is that confuses this sense of justice. And one, we don't have that entirely in the United States of America. And we should be working more for that. And that's something everybody could agree on. And secondly, we have millions of brothers and sisters scattered all over the world in the faith and in the human family who have never experienced that. And if we get mushy on it, they're never going to experience it. Whatever we accomplish as a social unit of people creating a good society, whatever that means— the developing world is looking to us to help them. And if we get mushy on the thing they need the most, they're dying from corruption and exploitation through oppression. They, they, the thing they need the most desperately is this kind of justice. And if we get soft on this, we can't help them. We can pour out mercy in, in thousands of gallons And it will disappear stolen from their mouths By the people who lord over them And if we can't be impartial and brave and honorable And just say It does not matter if you are poor And it does not matter if you are rich Everybody is equal under this law Because this law comes from God And it stands over everybody the same no matter what your position or who you think you are. Because before God, you're equal. And that is the basis on which you deserve justice. Leviticus nineteen fifteen: Do not pervert justice or show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great. But judge your—and this is an important word— but judge your—what are they most fundamentally? Your neighbor fairly. Those people, those people, they aren't the rich. They aren't the destitute and the poor. They aren't, not according to justice. According to justice, they are your neighbor. That's who they are. And they should be treated fairly, whether you despise them because of their wealth or you look down on them because of their poverty. The, the problem that we, we have to face, though, Is that we don't have a Torah Ruling over us as a people You see in the Old Testament The law was from God So justice was just Doing what God said The problem is we have a law we made Right So we have a Justice problem In the area of making laws See the Jews didn't They didn't have a legislative branch They just had an executive and a judicial branch That's it The biggest human problem comes in the legislative process. We—you can't—it's hard to have—it's hard to have people being treated fairly if the laws themselves aren't fair, right? And I—listen, i I don't want to shirk that responsibility, and I'm not going to say that's not an issue. That is what we're arguing about, most fundamentally, politically. I—I just don't want to see us lose track of what justice is in its greater sphere and its most basic sense because we're arguing over here about what policies are best. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's so easy to do that. Um, Let me make three observations about this and really fast. The first is, um, justice in the Old Testament never includes the realignment of income or wealth. It just doesn't. But, it does include charitable taxation. It does include that. There was was a— Uh, Every third year the tithe went to the poor, right? Every third year, so... There's that, and there was a work access law, right? Because every seven years, there was a redistribution of land to the families it originally belonged to. So they, they wouldn't go, oh, you made $10 million this year, so now we're going to take this much of it. But on the seventh year, what happened? That land went back to this person. So, so people had access to the ability to try to create some wealth, to try to work, to try to make a living. That was there. So you see, there were these kind of certain laws that existed to make sure that— even fairness couldn't be too dominating But there was a very, very strong sense And it's assumed everywhere in the Bible That personal property is legitimate In fact, that's where we get the whole idea in Western culture That personal property is legitimate And listen, I am going with Moses over Jean-Jacques Rousseau on this one, okay? Listen, I'm just gonna um, I believe that that is scriptural Second, and I could be wrong about that I'm just saying that's what I am observing is the flow In particularly the Old Testament The second is um, The actual law had priority over moral sentiments You can't break the law to make justice And the third observation I'll make is this Um, No law could treat one citizen differently than another Even economically now, the Old Testament did allow for percentages So, if you, so see, for example, the tithe was a 10% tax on everybody, right? So that's not treating everybody technically equally, right? Because the real dollars rich people pay is going to be more, right? But there, were, there, was no, there was no graduated tax system Everybody was treated exactly—and even the poorest had to pay their 10% Now, they might receive back from the tithe, but everybody paid the same thing Everybody was treated equally. Everybody had the same stake in the society. Nobody was, was expected because of one thing or another to take more responsibility. Now, listen, I, I don't know that th- that's the Old Testament. That's how—it was an agrarian society. They were living in a theocracy. I don't know how much of that. I don't know. I don't know how much of that we can apply. But I think we need to be careful if the larger idea of justice in the Bible has to do with people being treated fairly, whether rich or poor— I don't think we can say, well, that applies to everything but people's personal property. I think we need to be careful about that because it is so easy for us to fall into what we think is well-meaning, to fall into the politics of greed on one side or envy on the other when we think we're doing a good job. Okay, I'll offend you about that more later, so let me move on. Second is, in the Bible, it shouldn't terrify us that justice is a fairly— See, I like that justice is in your category. You know why? Because it's solid. It'd be great if you, oh, justice is everything that's good. No, 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 it's not. It's this. It's people being treated rightly under law. That's good because it's solid. If you see that it's narrow, but it's solid, it's a pillar. You can put weight on that. That bears something. You can make decisions based on it. It's, it's meaty. You see, the minute you go, justice is everything that's good, it, it's now it's nothing. And so that's why having categories like justice, mercy, Grace, compassion, honor. Why having different words in different categories are important. So we've got to be at least not mushy-headed enough to be able to make some of these distinctions, right? Okay. Second is mercy is mandatory in the Bible. Mercy is— man- Listen, if I say, look, justice is this, you can't go, oh, so I can do it. What- I don't have to give anybody anything. Wrong. Wrong. In the Bible, mercy is mandatory in this sense— um, you cannot be a regenerate believer, meaning the work of God cannot be happening inside you if it does not create mercy. Christians, real Christians, meaning Christians who are Christians from God's perspective, not people who label themselves Christians, are merciful people, period, full stop. There are no exceptions to that. Now, there are varying degrees There are varying amounts of how much the Gospels worked itself out in you, all that kind of thing. But there are no exceptions to the simple fact that Christians are merciful, period. And if they aren't, they're not Christians. And if they're not Christians, they're not justified by faith. And if they're not justified by faith, well, then they're in a heap of trouble, frankly, biblically speaking. And one of the things God will judge them for is that he created them to be merciful beings like he is merciful and they rejected and rebelled against his cosmic lordship over the imperative of mercy. Proverbs seventeen five says, He who mocks the poor shows contempt for their maker. Whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. That's a sobering verse, isn't it? It's a sobering verse. He who mocks the poor shows contempt for his maker. And whoever gloats over disaster will not go unpunished. In Matthew 25, the whole passage on the sheep and the goats, right? whole passage. Jesus judging divides people in sheep and goats, right? Sheep are going to go to heaven. The goats are not going to go to heaven. And that he, he said, and, and, and what does he say is the basis on which so, it's so clear who the sheep and the goats are to him. And he says, what? Well, because I I, when I was hungry, you preached the gospel to me, right? No, he said, you, you fed me when I was in prison. You visited me when I was—all these basically physical, material mercy categories. Now it's Jesus he's claiming all of a sudden at the end of his ministry, just before they kill him, that— he was wrong about all that gospel stuff, being justified by faith and believing in but and now he's going to be No. What he's saying is is that if if you're mine, if you're mine, you're gonna be compassionate. You're gonna be compassionate, you're gonna be merciful, you're gonna be gracious to others, you're gonna be generous, you're just gonna you're gonna be that. And if you're not that, then when you get judged by your works, it will show What? That God's heart Never had an effect here The work of God Never happened, faith never Came The, 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 the taking out of the heart of stone And the putting into the heart of flesh In Ezekiel 36, 36 that never really happened you, you thought it happened You had a psychological experience And then you labeled yourself a Christian And you did, but that didn't happen Mercy is mandatory. And the reason mercy is mandatory is, three, because gospel people, gospel people are compassionate. They're compassionate. The gospel, gospel people are just and merciful. They're just and merciful because they are compassionate. Compassion essentially means that you personally identify with the suffering of others. You personally identify with the suffering of others. One of the most, one of the most uh, um, painful experiences of my emotional life is that I can have a conversation with somebody deeply, deeply hurting, and I can give them great advice, and I can act really compassionate, but, but it doesn't—they doesn't, cry, I don't cry when they cry. And I've seen people who just instantly— Right? Somebody—they don't—they're not even crying yet, and this person's already crying, you know? Just, they just—they in, internalize. Now, as a pastor, I would already be crazy if I did that, really, you know? I mean, there's only so much of all of yours and all your friends and all their friends' junk I can take on personally, emotionally. Okay? So it may just be a defense mechanism, but— um, but there's a lot of people who are very compassionate heart, and that's—that happens when you believe the gospel. And if you have co-passion, right? With suffering, if you suffer with others If you, when you see them suffering You emotionally connect that with yourself Are you going to be able to not To be indifferent about whether or not they receive justice? Of course not Of course not And if you suffer with others And they are in pain And in need Are you going to be, are you going to have the ability to not care? Of of course not, right? Right? So you see, if the gospel creates compassion, gospel people are going to be just and they're going to be compassionate. They're going to be loving. They're going to be merciful. And you won't have to tell them to do it. it, it well, you, you still do because we, you know, we kind of stink. It's that we will go back to the doctrine of depravity, in, you know, another week. But, but the work of the gospel, it produces that. And, and one of the ways this gets worked out in Scripture is that there's a number of places in Scripture where, where there is parallel thinking between— our spiritual new life in God and the material situation of people we're around and how that, that parallel is binding and does matter. And if you think gospel thoughts, you'll feel very compelled by them. Let me give you a couple examples first. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 9 to 12. It says this. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth. He says, For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain verse 11 If we have sown spiritual seeds among you is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you But we did not use this right on the contrary we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ So you see what, you hear what he's saying He's basically saying look even the Torah says when the when the ox is 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 treading the grain you're harvesting you're not allowed to put something on his mouth so he can't eat some of it right That's mean He's the one who's taking it all in. Let him have a couple mouthfuls for heaven's sake, right? And he says, and and Paul says, listen, you think that's just for oxen? And Paul's saying that's true for missionaries and for pastors, right? They, they, yeah, they sow spiritual seeds. Does that mean that they only get spiritual, right? So what he's arguing for, he's saying, look, if I wanted to be paid, you'd have to pay me. That's what he's saying, right? And he's saying that's legitimate. Right? And he's saying, now we didn't do that. I worked hard so you didn't have to because I was afraid you'd take offense at that. So instead I worked myself half to death so that you wouldn't be offended by that. But I want you to know now that you're already Christians and you're a church and you're trying to be Christian, I, need, I want you to know now that just because I didn't take any money doesn't mean that you shouldn't be full of generosity towards people just because I babied you when you were immature. Right? That's what he's saying to these folks. But you see the gospel parallel? I sowed spiritual seed, I have the right to reap a material harvest. Why? Because you benefited greatly spiritually. Why wouldn't you be generous back materially? You see the parallel there? But you see how it's a spiritual material parallel, and Paul is saying that that's a legitimate logic for a Christian. That's a gospel logic. Right? Or Second Corinthians 8, 9, 9, 8, 9. This is when he sends the Corinthians and says, hey, y'all ought to give a gift for this other church who's really, really poor even though you guys aren't doing terribly hot yourselves. Um, and here's what he says. He says, this is 8, 2 Corinthians 8, 8, 9. I'm not commanding you, but I, listen to what he says, I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty you might become rich. You see what he he's arguing? He's saying Jesus was the heavenly king. He was rich in every possible way. He became a poor child who got killed, right? He's like, this, this is generosity, right? That's Jesus' heart. That's, That's what Jesus is like. Now, what are you like? You see, he's saying, If you think that thought You're going to think about your money differently than Why are you burdening us With some message about poor people I've never met Right Those people should work harder They should have built silos And they should have been storing grain Because you know what droughts happen And they should have been ready for it You know Is it my fault they ate too much And didn't store away for the future That's That's the way people will—that's the way people naturally think. But that's not the logic of the gospel, is it? It's not that—the gospel logic doesn't think—doesn't think just justice thoughts. Gospel people think gracious thoughts. We use—we use a logic of, what have I received freely? And what am I therefore, in a way, bound by what it's done in me to give freely? Luke fourteen twelve to 14. I, this is a really funny verse, even though I don't think I've really ever done it. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers, or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You see a lot, see sometimes what we say there is this. We go, you see that that's all about treasure in heaven, right? If you do good things for people with your material wealth, what's going to happen in heaven? You will get an amplified return on your investment of material wealth in heaven. Now, that does say that. You may think that's shallow, but it really does say that. Because Jesus likes to reward people, okay? You're just going to have to fault him for that some other time. But he, he's very, he has a very open wallet. He, he, he really likes blessing. When people do the right thing, he thinks that's fantastic. He's not stingy at all. He, he just, he, he is totally unblushing and saying, there's a heaven. It's going to be great. I'm making it. It's going to rock. And there, you could go if you want. (laughs) Right? And if you do nice things, nice things for people, that's probably going to get me all jittery and make me want to do more. I'm going to, I'm going to just do stuff. Up here, because I just—I can't help but respond when people respond, right? And, you see, you—that ought to that hit us because, you see, that's who we are, right? You, you're, you and I, we're the crippled people, right? We're the poor. We're the people with Tretz syndrome you don't want to invite over the house. That's us, right? I mean, what are you—what are you planning on doing in heaven, right? Are, I mean, what do you do, 10,000 years into everlasting life, you're going to go, now, oh, Jesus— really appreciate you inviting me over to your place. Let's—I want to invite you over to mine. I made this other altar in heaven, and you should come over and hang out. Right? That's not going to happen. You're not going to have anything Jesus didn't give you. You've never had anything Jesus didn't give you. For a a gazillion years in everlasting life, you're never going to have anything Jesus didn't give you. Jesus gives everything. You're never going to repay him. That's never going to happen, and so are you the kind of person who gives freely to people who can't repay you because you're compassionate, because that's what Jesus does. Jesus didn't give to anyone who could repay him. Isn't that interesting? Okay, so I'm out of time on that one. But you could go through the logic of failure, right? Why don't we want to help? Why don't we want to be merciful? Why don't we want to help poor people? Because we know that bound up in poverty oftentimes is personal moral failure, right? Poverty is caused by oppression— it's caused by calamity, and it's caused by personal moral failure, and usually it's some of all three of those. But guess what? What, what are the causes and effects of sin? Oppression, calamity, and personal moral failure. You, you see how we're, we're going to end up with a parallel logic here? Wh- where were you? You see, you were living in a culture that had left God. You were living in the world, the Bible calls it. That is, the— humanity and the effects of human culture that are opposed to God. And so you were under the oppression of a God not caring about culture and there were calamities created by sin and it was a context in which it was very easy for you to engage in personal moral failure. Right? If you believe the gospel, you believe that about yourself. It's a mandatory premise in the gospel. Now, if that's the case, what makes you different than a poor person who does deserve her poverty or his poverty? Take your most undeserving poor person, who is not just the recipient of oppression and calamity, but personal moral failure, and ask yourself, are you really different You see, in your practical material life, you may have drawn different cards and you may have made different choices and you might be different, but spiritually you are no different, you see? And if you think in gospel logic, you are the undeserving poor, right? God provided abundantly for us. Therefore, we have every motivation to be merciful and compassionate, right? And you can do that with a logic of rescue. You can do it with a logic of family. You can do it with a hundred logics in the gospel. And therefore, compassion, ministry, and therefore justice and mercy has never had to be commanded among Jesus' true worshipers. It's never had to be commanded. Um, Act 6, the first program in the church was for poor widows. Acts 2, people shared voluntarily. Nobody had to make them share. You didn't need a government program for Christians to share and make sure people didn't starve to death. They just did it. Galatians 2, 9 to 10, when Paul and, and James parted company that Paul was going to go to the Gentiles, James just said to him, hey, hey, you just remember those poor people. And, and Paul was like, how could I not? He said, it was the very thing I was eager to do. So Mr. Missionary Evangelism didn't have to be told. Why? Because he—no, he understood the gospel. How could he forget the poor? How could he not care about mercy? And the same thing was true in the early church, in the plagues of 165 and 251, the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire devastated Christians everywhere, helping each other and helping their neighbors, which is how Rome got Christianized. They didn't leave when smallpox came because how could they abandon their neighbors to suffering and death when Jesus didn't abandon them to suffering, death, and hell? How could they? Even if it cost them their own life. Okay. Let me make a few, oh gosh, very quick observations about applying this. This is not going to be inspiring. Um, Please do come back next week. (laughs) One, the politics of greed, envy, and pride will not make us more compassionate, just, and merciful. Where is your heart really in your political thinking? I won't say more about that right now. Second, it is important to integrate this week with last week, to integrate your theology of justice with your theology of work. In our work, we help create justice by doing work that creates wealth rather than looks for a racket to get other people to pay us for offering them nothing. The more productive we choose to be, the more economically possible justice is. Third, we need to be less simplistic and self-righteous, yet more engaging in political thinking and speech. Um, We need to remember that slander and humiliation are justice issues. Slander is the first justice issue. And when you believe things too easily and tell lies about other people even out of ignorance— You are slandering other people and you are breaking the explicit commandment when when God said, you shall not engage in giving false testimony about your neighbor. And guess who your neighbor is? Your neighbor is Scott Walker. Your neighbor is every union leader in the state. Your neighbor is every Republican and Democratic politician. Your neighbor is every candidate for any office. Your neighbor is every alderman. Your neighbor is every public worker, school, bus. Every union member in every profession. Every single one of them is not rich or poor or politically corrupt. They are first and foremost your neighbor. And you shall not slander them and you shall not bear false testimony about your neighbor. And most of us are profoundly ignorant politically about what's really going on anywhere. One of the reasons Christians have such horrible reputations in politics is because we're so gullible and easily co-opted into movements. I'm not sure if it's worse when you're young, but it might be. Sorry about that one. But listen, we Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said in twelve twenty, he said, "I am afraid when I come to you, I may come and I may find you not as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be quarrelling and jealousy and outbursts of anger and factions and slander and gossip and arrogance and disorder among you, and I don't want that to be. He said, I don't want that to be the case. But I have a feeling that if we if we had if we each of us spoke to, if I, if we had another one of those greeting times and I said, talk about politics." Just, just blurt out some proposition about what should happen in the world. We'd probably have fights. And so we're, we're going to be, we're going to get along. We're just not going to, here's, we should have the best political discussions in the world in this church. Because it ought to be hospitable to Republicans and Democrats. It ought to be, we ought to believe the doctrine of depravity enough to question ourselves and to want critique from other people who can see our stupidity. We ought to know we're gullible and we believe things too easily and we need other people checking our facts. We ought to believe that in the gospel we ought to be able to come to a lot of things we can agree on and go from there, rather than the policy somebody spit out that we should support and then go from there to our theology. We ought to be going the other way around, and therefore we ought to be able to help each other. And we ought to be able to break down incivility and meanness. We ought to be able to learn how to listen. We ought to have—and we ought to talk about these things because we ought to care. You can't just go, I'm, no, I'm just not going to get involved in all that stuff. Well, you've got many roles, and one of your roles is citizen. And you've got to do the best job you can. And if you believe that, and if you believe all those other premises, then wh- what ought to happen? We ought to have some really good conversations. Now listen, and I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can, and I'm sorry that I'm over time, I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can. Please stop having political conversations on Facebook. (laughs) Don't clap. Do not clap. Do not clap. (laughs) And I don't just mean ones going on in this church. I mean, for the most part, with everybody. And if you're going to say something, you should say, I feel this way because I think this is a fact. And so it leads me to this conclusion. Do you have good evidence that that's not a fact? Not You've been co-opted by Glenn Beck Or whoever You hear me? This is important Because we create this whole gob Of injustice We are seething with Verbal slanderous injustice And you cannot do that And think we're going to get more justice over here If we don't understand justice here We can't make it over here. Economic justice, sociological economic justice, is the hardest, least scientific, most difficult, nearly impossible to come up with anything that we know is a true fact. And if if we think that's the first place we're going to get justice, but we can throw out how we talk to each other, we are living in a fantasy world. If we can't speak kindly to our neighbor. We cannot figure out what income distributions ought to be in a just, fair society. It's not going to happen. And I don't trust people who can't speak kindly to their neighbor to figure that out for me, frankly. Wee. <laughs> Fourth, we should focus on personal and community-based compassion. I'm not saying we shouldn't do statewide kind of stuff, or national-wide. I'm just going to leave that to the side for now. But... If you do stuff locally and personally, it will affect you more Because relationship is necessary for compassion to grow It's very hard to send a check somewhere or to pay your taxes And go, oh, I love those poor people, I pay my income tax No, you don't You have to You pay your income tax at the end of a barrel If it was voluntary tomorrow, most of you wouldn't pay it I don't care what you say (laughs) But if you go and help somebody in your neighborhood if you go and you watch a single mom's kids, and you go and you do something for a real human who is your neighbor, it will affect you. It will be much more effective in helping them because almost everybody who needs help needs relationship. They want to be part of a community. They want somebody who cares about them. They want to know they can be something. When group talked about a guy he met at seminary, going on to be a pastor. He got out of jail and he got a job at McDonald's, and the manager told him he was doing a good job keeping the fries hot. And he realized he could He could do something well And now he's out, he's pastor of a church somewhere Because it wasn't just he got a job But somebody complimented him His relationship is necessary to help people And you can't do that federally We have to do some things federally But we Have to do some things locally Partly for our own hearts And I don't have time to cover the rest of this It's too much. Go away with this. The gospel is not justice and mercy, but the gospel, if we think it through well, if we think a logic of grace and a logic of mercy, if we think about what Christ has really done for us and we let that pour out of us, we will transform Everything, and we'll never have to be told to do it. And we won't lose the gospel in our social action. Our gospel will truly fuel our social action. We can be a home for all kinds of people with all kinds of views, and we can accomplish much more good than we ever dreamed. And we can be a city on a hill. And it could be beautiful. And Jesus could be praised, and we could love each other, and people might, it might affect people. I don't know. Let's pray. God please don't send me to hell for the sermon I just preached I trust in Jesus for my justification alone and um, I repent of the things my mouth said that you don't like I pray that we would take seriously justice and mercy but not as a commandment let us not walk away thinking oh justice is this and mercy is mandatory let us go away thinking gospel thoughts that Jesus is compassionate And if we will co-suffer, if we will be like Jesus, if we will suffer with him like in his death and so somehow attain the resurrection from the dead, like Paul said in Philippians 3, that we will be, even if we can't work out all the reasoning for it, we will naturally be juster and more merciful people in more brave and disciplined and compassionate and emotional ways. Help us be that people, Father. And I pray that people would go away from here encouraged that you are a just God, that you are a merciful God, that you are a compassionate God, and that you forgive our failures in justice and mercy, but yet you still call us to be brave advocates of it, but only out of a logic of the gospel, recognizing that still the most just and merciful thing we can do for anyone is to tell them of the just and merciful one, Jesus, who delivers from sin, brings new life, sets the victim and captive free, and it's good news even for the poor. In Jesus' name, amen.